Hello and welcome to Philosophy Gets Schooled. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent, recording this episode in December 2022. This episode is a special episode, it's key terms bonanza time. So basically we'll be thinking about lots of different philosophical terms and distinctions, defining them and discussing a few of them. We'll also see what else we get on to as always. So joining me today, we have two uh, regular guests, Dan McKee, who teaches philosophy and blogs at Philosophy Unleashed. Hi, Dan. Hi, Simon. How's it going? And we've got Ben Jones, who teaches at King Edward VI College in Stourbridge. Hi, Ben. Hello again. Uh, Great to have the two of you with us. Okay, so we're going to talk through lots of different terms and definitions. Um, Many specifications have lists or discussion of key terms and ideas you may find in texts or in how you might reason, argue and understand. Um, There's a good list in AQA philosophy specification and a nice set also in the specification for Scottish hires philosophy. We'll also cover a few terms you may see if you're studying religious studies, such as under OCR or Edexcel or Educas. Um, the main point is whatever you're studying, whichever course you're on, so any of the ones I've mentioned or IB or anything else, having knowledge and understanding of all the terms and ideas we discuss will be really useful for you. We'll try to group these around a few themes, um, really basic ideas and terms in philosophy, um, some other ideas that are central in arguments and arguing, and then others that or miscellaneous which is a kind of interesting label so we were talking before we started recording ben dan and i are going to give this a pretty good go we hope we've got a decent order but who knows what tangents we might go in and what we might end up discussing um the division's slightly artificial anyway some of the basic terms are pretty important when we're arguing in the second part so we hope this will help though so let's start with some really basic ideas and terms which will involve no discussion, but who knows what what might happen. Um, So, Dan, you're going to start us with assertion and claim. Yeah, um, I think assertion and claim is one of those things that's really important to know. I think all of these words are really important to know, especially in the philosophy AQA A-level, because if you've got to write concisely, knowing these words really well can um, allow you to use one word well instead of using 20 words to say the same thing that the one word makes and what i've done there is i've backed up an assertion or a claim that it's useful to learn these words so for my definition assertion is just when you make a statement of some sort of proposition that you think is true right but you haven't provided any evidence or anything to back it up you just that is the statement so if i assert listen to this podcast it's good you know maybe even you should listen to this podcast would be an assertion um why it's good is starting to move out of assertion world and into trying to back it up but essentially any statement that you make where you're putting a claim forward without really providing anything more than just this is the claim at at that stage that's my assertion of what assertion is (laughs) okay that's that sounds pretty good um perhaps i'll go backwards and forwards and we'll see we'll see who gets the difficult ones as we work our way down the list. So, um, Dan, you just mentioned proposition. Ben, do you want to give us an idea about what a proposition is? Okay, so we're on to the difficult ones. Um, <laughs> a proposition, um, it depends. But one of the ways in which you might read proposition is just a another word for assertion or claim. So sometimes you'll be reading something and they'll just say, such and such made the proposition that. 
And it's just somebody made the statement that, somebody made the claim that, someone declared that, that kind of thing. Another way of thinking about propositions, and there's lots, again, there's lots of different things. You go through analytic philosophy, people phrase it slightly differently, look at it in different ways. But I think the way that I at least try and teach it is that statements contain a particular content. There's a thing that they're trying to say. And a lot of the time, that proposition, that thing that they're trying to say, is just exactly the same as the statement. So if I say, uh, it is December, then the propositional content of it is, it is December. It doesn't really make much difference. But then you'll get people like Bertram Russell bust it down into, there is at least one thing, which is blah, 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 and stretch it out. So the idea being that an assertion contains a certain amount of propositional content. It actually has a thing that it is trying to say. And the importance of picking up on propositions is because they don't just appear in our assertions, just stating that something is true. Um, propositions can also appear, or propositional content can also appear in um, anything from I believe that, or I know that, or I hope that. So there's this idea that other things can also contain propositional content. So on the one hand, you could think of it just as another way to say assertion. Or on the other hand, you could see it as the content of the assertion, what is being asserted in that assertion. Great. Yeah, thanks, Ben. In fact, um, in fact, we discussed this, didn't we, just before we came on. And in, in the build-up to this uh, episode, I was reading around various glossaries that are there for A-level students, and I noticed that they're... That we have both of these definitions and I imagine it could be confusing for students if they're reading you know two and they're comparing and contrasting so just to repeat what what Ben said but in different words which itself is very important into this topic right there's the vehicle and then there's the content right and so you can have the same content the same idea the same propositional content as Ben was saying but the vehicle can be slightly different right it can be a a sentence of English it can be a sentence of Spanish it can be sign language right when you start thinking like this it can be oral it can be written down okay so you can think of there being many vehicles but sometimes some people identify the vehicle as the proposition but also there are some people who distinguish the vehicle from the content and identify the proposition with that propositional content that is being um, being expressed and perhaps in different ways. Um, so watch out for that one, everyone. Uh, Dan, do you want to come in? I was just going to say, yeah, I think on the AQA spec as well, the use of proposition is, is important because they talk about propositional knowledge specifically. So just in terms of essay answers and things, using that that phrase, proposition, the proposition is, or this proposition, shows you're analysing propositions, which is kind of what they're saying you should be doing. So part of learning these words, I think, is about playing a psychological warfare on the examiner, you know, to show them you know what you're doing by using the correct terms in the correct way. And this is part of it. If, if you are talking consistently about propositions and propositional knowledge and analysing propositions, that kind of writing reads more fluidly than one that's sort of just saying random things all the time yeah good and just for the record ben is nodding and ben is one of the examiners you may be having to impress <laughs> everyone well, just to echo what dan was saying there i think that there's a, a couple of things that dan said already that are, that are worth bringing up it's not just about kind of like the 
impressing the examiners. It's about the fact that you, we've got these words for a reason and you don't want to over say things. I think one of the things that we'll see coming up, I can already see some words on the list where it sounds like you're being finickety when you say to a student, don't use that word, use this word. Because they're kind of like, ah, but it means the same thing. And they don't. They don't mean the same thing. And you're, you're not doing yourself a favour by using the wrong word. And the examiner will see what you're trying to say, but you're not actually saying what you think you say. And you'll do better if you actually say what you think you say rather than, uh, rather than not. Absolutely. Okay, great. So let's move on to an easy one then. Uh, Dan, we're back to you. True, false. <laughs> an easy one. Um, well, it seems easy, doesn't it? Because we always use those words all the time. Things are true if they are in, ca- in, in they are the fact, they are the case or whatever. And things are false if they are not. And that seems pretty straightforward. But if you've done even a bit of epistemology, you then start going, well, how do you know something is the case? Like what's our standard of truth? And what's our standard of falsehood? So it can depend contextually, I think, on which area of a course you are using the words true and false. And I think a lot of students maybe misuse it when they talk about arguments and objections to arguments. And they sometimes accuse something that another philosopher said of being untrue because so-and-so raised an objection to it. And actually, no, it's it's not untrue. There's maybe a problem with the logic of an argument or something, but that's not the same as being uh, false. So true and false because of of the possible areas of of conflict, confusion, different usage, if you're going to use them in a philosophy essay, I think you have to really know that you are talking about truth or falsehood or talking about um, truth within the context. So in, say, the tripartite view, truth is one of the conditions. What do we mean by that? Well, that's actually part of the discussion, isn't it? How do we ever get to a, a justified true belief? What does it mean? So I think... From the reason they flag it up as words is, is yeah, we know true things are things that are, false things are things that are not. But what does that mean might be different if you're discussing ethics, if you're discussing meta-ethics, if you're discussing epistemology, if you're discussing God, you know, because, you know, it is true that God exists as a concept because we can talk about God meaningfully and people understand their religions, people follow God. But that's very different from the question, is it true that God exists ontologically as an actual thing is there a god so that the context of where you're using i think true and false is the thing to be aware of in philosophy rather than thinking the definition is is that complicated what's complicated is the context i think of where you're using it yeah yeah so in fact uh sometimes things can be quite simple so true and false just mean as as dan said but just as a kind of advert so if you're interested in philosophy and think you might want to do it at university level then you might end up doing a course in philosophy of language or metaphysics or just a course called theories of truth. Because when you come to university, you might end up studying the various theories of how some sort of statement or assertion gets to be true in the first place and how assertions get to be false. So there's things called the correspondence theory of truth, where you've got statements that correspond to or mirror the world of stuff or you've got a different theory, which is the coherence theory, where things get to be true or false if these statements cohere with one another. And all sorts of other things come into play, like relativism and and people who don't want to think about truth at all. And it gets really interesting because we start thinking about negative statements, such as the cat is not on the mat. What is the thing that makes it true that the cat is not on the mat? Well, the absence of a cat. Well, what what is it for 
the absence of a cat to exist. So we get into those sort of debates. But luckily, that's not on any A-level specification. But that's just a quick advert that uh, philosophy is cool. If you really like this sort of stuff, then you can end up doing doing it at university level. Right, let's move on then. And something we, we talked a bit about uh, knowledge already. So we've mentioned true, false. Let's get on to the other big one, justification. So Ben, justification. Um, justification, I suppose, I mean, it depends on the context that you're using it, but really your justification is your grounds for believing an assertion. So it's the, on the one hand, it's kind of the the evidence that you give to justify or to strengthen or show why you believe something. So we were talking there at the start about why is it that we believe that this is an assertion and things like that, like Dan's example, and he was talking about, you know, kind of giving his own example and then giving reasons for it. So all of those things that followed were the justifications for that belief, um, which then leads on to a whole other area of um, what constitutes justification. So on the one hand, you get, as with true and false, you get the very basic definition, which is a, well, it's what, whatever your reasons are for believing a proposition. Um, but then at the same time, we wouldn't just say that anything was justification. Some people say, no, it can't just be your reasons for believing. It's got to be good reasons for believing because you're not, you wouldn't be justified in believing something if there were bad reasons. So it's not just the reasons you give, it's the good reasons you give. And then you're opening up this whole can of worms as to what actually constitutes good reasons for believing something, um, which is an entire, if you like, area. Again, on the AQA spec, when you're looking at the, the tripartite definition of knowledge and things like that, that, it becomes quite apparent quite quickly that just that tripartite definition, justified true belief, is a bit loose. It's kind of like just that word justification could mean anything. It could mean anything from um, I saw it in my own eyes down through to I woke up with a gut feeling through to I flipped a coin. You need some sort of account of justification. But it all comes down to that idea of what are the reasons for your belief in that proposition? Great. Should we move on then? So we, these are kind of some very basic ones, but now we're getting it into some two interesting distinctions that uh, are not so familiar in everyday English, but they're uh, used quite a lot, quite freely in uh, in philosophy. So we've got analytic synthetic. Uh, who wants to take that one on? Happy to. Yeah, I mean, I think this is where it all comes together, what we've been saying, and this idea of why it's important to know something is a proposition rather than an assertion, you know, why we use this language. Because I think my understanding is we tend to use analytic and synthetic to talk about propositions of knowledge uh, or some sort of claim that we, we make. And it's a way of thinking about justifying those truth claims within those propositions in a way, because what we're saying is a, a, saint, a proposition uh, is analytic if it's true by definition, the thing that it's trying to say. So if I say, you know, a triangle uh, is a three-sided shape, it's justified because the very meaning of the word triangle is a three-sided shape. If, 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 I've, if it's not a three-sided shape, I've, I've used the word triangle wrong or I've used three-sided shape wrong. Like it, it is just tautologist, to use another word, tautology, basically saying something is what it is. Um, whereas synthetic statement, you know, there is a triangle 
in the next room is something that's a statement about the world that I'd have to actually go and check out with some other kind of evidence or justification. I'd have to look at the world to see if the the synthetic proposition is actually true or not. Um, So it tends to be a way of analysing. And and all of this, again, I said at the start, is about shorthand and, and thinking about how to do philosophy efficiently. If someone gives you an assertion or a proposition and you hear the the statement the claim that they're making and you go well yeah that is true by definition you've already done the work just by identifying it as an analytic statement if you identify as a synthetic statement that can help you with certain things like well what's the argument that they're making to support that claim and then you run into things like we've seen with like the ontological argument famously where maybe you're trying to make a synthetic statement about something that's true in the world but you're using an analytic argument to get there and it doesn't quite work. And you might go, well, that's where there's a tension in that argument or, or vice versa. You claim something is analytically true and something goes, well, it's not because that doesn't mean that and we have to check that out in the world. So by identifying it, it gives you a kind of tool to knowing how to proceed in terms of arguing against it or for it, defending it or, or critiquing it. So yeah, uh, as a simple definition, an analytic statement is a proposition that is true by definition, and a synthetic statement is a proposition about the world that's sort of true by checking it out. Okay, great. Thanks very much. And that takes us straight on to another distinction that's in the same sort of ballpark, though we're not going to talk too much about Kant, I don't think. A priori and a posteriori. So, Ben, do you want to take those two for us? Yeah, um... The distinction between a priori and a posteriori, I suppose if I link it to what Dan was just talking about there, imagine that you get given a, a proposition which is analytic. So it's a, it's a proposition where as long as you grasp the concepts involved, then you need no further evidence. You can just sit there and reason it through. Then if you're kind of looking at that sort of analytic approach to things, then that's very often tied in with what we call the a priori or a priori knowledge or a priori reasoning or it's a very broad sort of church a priori is used a lot in a lot of different ways by a lot of different philosophers but it always has this idea of it being without experience or um, no need for experience or prior to experience so I think the big thing is that a lot of students get confused about that and say but I only know what a triangle is because I was taught what one was at school or you know how could i know what a bachelor was without experience and there is a debate about that but the whole the whole point is is that in in principle if you know what a bachelor is then you know that a bachelor is an unmarried man and therefore you need no further empirical evidence to know that if something was a bachelor then it would be an unmarried man or if something was a triangle then it would have three sides whereas the other claims those claims that we do actually need to go out into the world and use empirical evidence to check up on them would be a posteriori or rather claims where you know them because of experience they come after experience they're the kinds of things that would require experience in order to be known like cats sitting on mats or you know skies being blue or things like that so there's some you know kind of like posh sounding words but all they really mean is could you know this prior to experiencing the thing just from thinking about the concepts involved or using deductive logic, which we'll talk about later, I'm sure, or 
Um, is it something where you would only know about it because you had experienced it? There's nothing a priori about it. You couldn't know it just from the concepts or just from the logic involved. Yeah, good. Yeah, just to underline that thought, because there's often a um, a kind of um, thought that students have where they where they kind of just miss what the distinction is. So a posteriori, you have to go out in the world. It requires uh, you going out in the world to to decide whether this statement is true or false and looking at what colour the sky is today, whether it's blue or grey or whether the cat is on the mat or isn't on the mat. A priori, you don't, it doesn't require you to do it. You could do it from uh, just, just thinking about the concepts. Even if your teacher has introduced you to triangles in the first place, that's how it happens to have entered your head. Um, but it needn't have needn't have done so. But as Ben said, that's quite a simple uh, definition. And then philosophers play around with that, so it gets very murky very quickly. But we don't need to worry about that at this stage uh, here. Yeah, but it is uh, worth maybe just again for the students to to say that by being able to identify that all the other stuff on your courses, whichever course you're doing, you can start to see some of the philosophical problems that come along because. Are we talking about something that's empirically true? Are we talking about something that you can just do in your head? And does that tell us about where knowledge comes from or how arguments are working or not working? So it's a really useful identifier to help with, with all aspects of the course. Yeah, great. Okay, let's uh, leave things there. In the next part, we'll think about terms that are central in arguing and arguments, although I, I feel that we've we've done a lot of work already on that, uh, but we've got some more terms to come, so we'll see you in a short while. And welcome back. So before we move into this part, just to remind you to check out our website, if you search for my name, Simon Kirchin, K-I-R-C-H-I-N, you'll find my personal website. Uh, we've got a list of uh, topics on the site. Just click on the tabs at the top and click on Pod Schools. There's a list of the topics and a list of the timetable. Um, please have a look at them. Feel free to contact me, send us in comments and questions, and we'll try and include them in some of our discussions for our next few episodes um, also a quick advert for another podcast i run it's called philosophy takes on the news so every week i chat about the significant events with other philosophers getting at some of the big ideas behind the headlines we've just recorded the end of year special and published that we've also done specials on the world cup and u.s midterm elections okay so we've introduced some really basic philosophical terms uh, let's now think about terms that are central in arguing and arguments, although, you know, truth, falsity, justification, they come up quite a lot as well. I hope uh, you and we will be able to make some of the links uh, between all of the topics. Anyway, Ben, why don't you start us off just by thinking about what an argument and what arguing is, because they appear in some of these glossaries, so we've got to just nail that down first. Yeah, I mean, last section we started off by looking at assertions, and Dan mentioned that when you state something is true and you just leave it hanging there, then you've asserted something. Now, if you then assert something but then start to give reasons why that thing is true, then what you're doing there is arguing. You are producing an argument. So um, in its, at its simplest, a an argument is a 
claim that you put forward as a conclusion, that is a thing that you're stating is true, and at least one claim that you are putting forward as a reason for that conclusion. And that gives you your argument, at least one reason and a conclusion that follows from it. And the point is that your reason is supposed to back up your conclusion. One of the things that we'll see kind of like building through probably all the stuff that we talked in this section, I imagine, is this idea that if the reason that you're giving is true, or sometimes as we'll see, if the premises of your argument are true, then it's either going to be that your conclusion must be true or, or is likely to be true or is strengthened in it being true. But the whole point is, is that the truth of those reasons should give somebody a reason to believe the conclusion. It should support that conclusion. So the truth of the of the of the reason is supporting that conclusion when you're arguing. Okay, great. In fact, you've just introduced the next topic. So Dan, do you want to talk us through the distinction of deductive and inductive reasoning? Yeah, uh, if if arguments are about you know set set of premises that that lead to a conclusion, deductive and inductive is really about sort of how they lead there and on what basis we think that the conclusion is entailed by the premises that precede it. So um, a deductive argument is kind of one of those arguments that if it, if it works, if it's sound and if it's valid, you, you, you can't really argue with. So it's one of the, it's a structure where each premise logically entails the next to, so that the conclusion kind of has to be the case. So an example I might use uh, when teaching in Birmingham is that the university of Birmingham, is in Birmingham. Birmingham is in the United Kingdom. Therefore, the University of Birmingham is in the United Kingdom. Because those two premises are true, and they follow essentially, you know, X is in Y, Y is in Z. Therefore, it follows through, X would also be in Z. Birmingham University would be in Birmingham. And so that form, if it's all true, everything follows and you have a a conclusion that kind of must be the case. So a good deductive argument, a sound valid deductive argument um, kind of has to be true. So as a philosopher, in a way, it's the holy grail. I always say, if, you, if you're if you trying to prove something or make a case for something, a deductive argument that gets to that conclusion is, is what you're looking for. But it also can kind of show us that maybe there's there's problems with it. It's a good way of identifying that, you know, only works if the premises are true. So the same argument, University of Birmingham is in Birmingham, Birmingham is in Alabama, United States. Therefore, the University of Birmingham is in the United States. That is not true because the University of Birmingham is not. That argument doesn't work. But we can know that by looking at those premises and going, well, hang on, what went wrong there? Because the structure seems to be valid. Ah, we were talking about different Birmingham. And we've kind of identified the problem within the premises because by identifying it as a deductive argument, we can kind of do a bit of where's the fault in this structure that should work. So deductive argument works by you know deducing um, entailment from premises to a conclusion that, that must be the case. Whereas inductive argument is more likely, if, if deductive argument is the holy grail, it's also quite rare. It's usually back to those earlier phrases, things that are kind of analytically true, we can kind of deduce, um, but it's not always the case and it's quite hard and you, you've got to do some, some checking. So most of the time we use inductive reasoning which is where you simply infer a conclusion from the premises. So if one thing is true, it's likely that another thing is going to be the case. So it kind of follows, but only on probability and sort of logic of 
it, it's done that in the past or there's a sort of relationship between the premises that makes sense so we think it will so you might go you know um if it's raining i get wet um so i, I look it's raining I, i'm, I'm going to get wet today but actually i might not get wet i might go outside and happen to be walking under shelter every single moment or the wind happens to protect me in some magical way so it's most likely i'm going to get wet going out in the rain but it might not and there's no guarantee of it so it only might be the case probably will be the case but is not guaranteed which again is useful in an argument because if you rec recognize that someone has made an argument that feels like it follows feels like the conclusion is reasonably inferred if you're looking to critique that argument or find a problem with it you can see well how good is that inference and is is there a possibility of another conclusion and it works kind of forward and backwards and, and the one we use a lot is abductive reasoning where you're kind of trying to work backwards and infer to the best explanation of something that you have now so it's still an inductive argument but it's kind of backwards looking rather than forwards looking so in the first example you know if it rains i'll get wet so i'm assuming i'm inferring i'm going to get wet if i go outside but the other thing is you know my wife comes in and she's soaking wet and i therefore go right well, what's the most logical explanation for that the most reasonable explanation probably raining you know it's december there's been bad weather but I don't realise, she says, no, the next door neighbour just poured a bucket of water over me for no reason. And that's a possibility that I just hadn't considered as being likely. And we use that sort of reasoning in law. You know, we don't know, people don't admit who did crimes, but we have to work backwards from evidence and go, who's likely? Or in medicine, where here's some symptoms, what what is it? And people work backwards and go, well, if you've got that, you, it might be caused by this virus. As we know in law, where you get wrongfully accused people, and in medicine, we get misdiagnosis. The problem with inductive uh, reasoning is that it is just an inference. It might not be the case, um, but it is the most likely kind of argument we end up using because most of the time, because of truth not being clear, we don't have clear deductive arguments to make. So quite a lot of philosophy is about identifying that it's just an inductive argument as some sort, and therefore, where is the uh, the hole in the inference that there might be a problem in the reasoning? Great. Thanks, uh, Dan. So that's deductive, inductive, and a bonus for abductives. That's uh, that's really great. Shall we move on then? Because this is all in the same sort of zone. So, Ben, do you want to talk us through consistent and inconsistent? Right. So we're back back to assertions, really, yeah. <laughs> this one. Let's say you've got two assertions, two claims that you can make. Two assertions are consistent if they can both be asserted as true at the same time. So you can think of it in terms of your beliefs. You can hold two beliefs at the same time without inconsistency, without, I mean, I'm, I'm going to use the word contradiction here. It gets a bit more complicated than that, but but we'll see that it gets more complicated than that. But we can kind of initially think of it as kind of like without contradiction. Now, the point is people will often think about um, then all of those beliefs have to be about the same topic. So, for example, the fact that uh, I currently believe that it's December and I also believe that it is near Christmas and so on, those are not inconsistent. Those are consistent beliefs. But on the other hand, I can say that uh, I believe it's December and I believe that I'm currently sat in my dining room. Those are consistent beliefs. I can hold both of those beliefs at the same time without there being any sort of clash between those beliefs. Whereas if I were to say something like, it is December, but I'm more than three months away from Christmas, then I couldn't hold both of those beliefs at the same time. 
because Christmas is in December, at least as we celebrate it. Um, that's one for theologians. But the the whole point is that we I can't hold those two beliefs at the same time. If I hold those two beliefs at the same time, then I'm being inconsistent because it could only be the case that one of them was true and the other one was false. doesn't matter which way around it is. It could be that I'm further away from the, from Christmas than that, uh, in which case it's not going to be December. Um, or it is December, in which case my claim about how far away from Christmas we are is going to be false. So it can't be that both of those claims are true. Now, the point is that this is not the same as contradiction. And students should be wary about, I think students can use the word contradiction to just kind of mean, say something different to criticizes and so on. And contradiction is actually something sort of stronger than just being inconsistent. Like it's true that I can't be, let's say, for the sake of it, it would be inconsistent if I said I was a rationalist and an empiricist at the same time. But if we're going to go down the nerdy route on this, really, contradiction would be something along the lines of I'm an empiricist and I'm not an empiricist. Those are in conflict with each other. It can't be that I'm an empiricist and not an empiricist. But at the same time, not an empiricist is a pretty broad claim. Like there's loads of things that aren't empiricists. Like, I don't know, my shoes aren't empiricists. So like, you, <laughs> there's, there's this whole thing. So you have to kind of think about what is the scope covered by the claims that you're making? What are they making reference to when you're actually trying to look at it? So where you find something like contradiction, it might be something like Christmas Day is on an odd numbered day and Christmas Day is on an even numbered day. Now, the reason being because they can't both be true at the same time, but they also can't both be false at the same time because the problem with being inconsistent is they can't both be true, but they could both be false. That's the thing. So if I say something like it's December, that could be false. But then at the same time, it's more than three months till Christmas could also be false. It could be November. So I can't hold both those beliefs to be true at the same time, but I could hold both of those beliefs to be false at the same time. That's where it would be inconsistent to believe them both. It would be contradictory to believe believe them both, where neither can be true at the same time, nor can they actually both be false at the same time. Because as soon as I say Christmas is on an odd um, on an odd numbered day, then it can't be an even numbered day. So that's kind of excluding both from being true. But then if I say, okay, well, it's false that it's on an odd-numbered day, then that must make it even. So it couldn't that couldn't be false as well. So it's a much stronger claim. If students want to go into look at this uh, in more detail, it's worth looking up like the difference between true dichotomies and false dichotomies. That's a nice little kind of nerdy rabbit hole you can get yourself caught up in to do with fallacies and things like that. But it is it is actually a really useful sort of like tool to get your head around that kind of thinking about the difference between things being inconsistent and things being contradictory because it just adds an extra layer to the way that you're thinking about things maybe allows you to realize that some things are kind of more exclusive than you thought or less exclusive than you thought it's just all part of that big old process of thinking things through okay great so again another bonus so we had consistency inconsistency and contradiction Thanks very much, Ben. So then, Dan, let's come back to you. Um, a few specifications have prove or proof. 
Um, yeah, and I'll build on what, what, what Ben was sort of saying there in terms of why this is there. I think it's about students maybe using a word that they have not got the right to use. Um, and I sort of touched on this a bit earlier. You know, if you think about proof in philosophy, kind of like in maths, it's something that has to be the case. You have proved it. So we're talking about those sound deductive arguments again, like that is a proof. It must be the case. And a lot of the time, students will, you know, just say in the rush of an exam, you know, so-and-so proved this with their argument. And their argument isn't intended to be a proof. The argument put forward is an inductive inference that's sort of, you know, best hypothesis, Occam's razor, something like that. This is the best I can come up with. And the philosopher themselves would never say this was a proof. It was never intended. And if a student says it, then it makes it look like you don't really understand. So from an examiner's point of view, straight away, you're like, oh, you don't get that this this argument is actually just a sort of contingent hypothetical kind of situation. Um, similarly, if you've objected to something, you can't say, oh, they disproved that argument by saying that there was a problem with it, unless the problem shows there is something that makes it, you know, logically impossible to be the case and and you have disproven it because you've you've made a reverse sound argument that says this cannot be the case so it's kind of just reminding students that a proof is a very special thing that many people would love to be able to say that they have and most of the time don't and most of the time I'd, i'd say philosophers are never really going for proof they are going for this is my best way of figuring it out right now based on everything I've got information wise and I don't know everything and here's some reasonable inferences I'm making and we'll see what people say in response to it so even when there's like back and forths where there's objections and responses objections and responses there's very few things where the philosopher would say yep I I proved it because I responded to the objection therefore it's proved it's still just interesting objection made me think I've responded to it tentatively that's that. So my rule to students is kind of don't say proof unless it's a proof and unless a philosopher does offer it as a proof. So if they do offer up a sort of deductive argument that says this has to be the case, I, I would argue in a way something like the ontological argument tries to prove the existence of God by making it you know, analytically necessary that such a being must exist. And, and that's where you can then look at it and go, is it a proof? So part of identifying a proof is saying if you are presenting it as a proof, does it meet that high standard of being a proof and not just a, a a good argument? So yeah, for me, like with contradiction is stronger than just being inconsistent. Proof is something stronger than an argument that's been put forward or an objection that's been put forward. Great. Thanks, Dan. That's really, really helpful. Okay, let's move on then. Uh, and two other words that aren't part of common English, but really important in the philosophy toolkit, and that's antecedent and consequence. Ben, do you want to talk us through P's and Q's, possibly, if that's what you're going to talk about? Yeah, always P's and Q's. It's like Smiths and Jones and P's and Q's. That's philosophy for the past hundred years. Um, So, yeah, antecedents and consequence are, if we back to propositions again, there's um, different types of proposition. So when you're looking at them, yes, they're all making claims, but then you get lots of different types of claims. So you get you get um, conjunctions, which are and propositions. You get disjunctions, which are all propositions. And then you get these things called conditionals, which are if-then propositions. So if P, then Q. Uh, if it is raining, then I'll get wet. Um, if it is a Thursday, then EastEnders will be on TV or whatever it might be. 
Is it still on the Thursday card? I don't know. But um, the point is that in that, you've got two bits. You've got a, if P is true, then Q will be true. And the if bit is the antecedent. It's the bit before. And the consequent is the then bit. So if we think about the, if I go outside, then I'll get wet. Or if, it, if it's raining, then I'll get wet. Then if it is raining is the antecedent and then I will get wet is the consequent. Again, uh, I won't go into any detail about this because it will take up far too much time. But again, if, you, if you're a big nerdy fan of this, it's always worth looking at things like denying the antecedent uh, and affirming the consequent and all those lovely fallacies that come where people use these badly. Because you'll actually find that a lot of arguments that you feel are going badly is because they've misused those if-thens. And a very quick look allows you to just be, just go, nah, you've just you've just denied the antecedent there. That's, that's, uh, that's a fallacy, that is. Um, and so it, knowing these little kind of technical terms for stuff are really useful because they give you that ability to be able to pick things apart in a much quicker it's like if you can spot them quickly then it's just done really quickly you just go no that doesn't work and then you move on yeah and in fact just to follow on from from that ben so again if you study any philosophy at university level you might end up doing a first year reasoning or logic course or whatever whatever it might be called and they'll probably start you off with, let's say, some newspaper editorials or things on social media. And they'll say, you know, what's the reasoning like here? And then you might think, oh, that's that's a bit wrong. What's going on there? And they'll try and tease it out of you about what's exactly going on. And it might just have the wrong form. And as Ben says, often um, the problem is that people have used those if-thens in an incorrect way. So the normal way is to say P, if P, then Q, therefore Q. Okay, let's move on then. Uh, and actually a word we've already used quite a bit, but let's just nail it. And that's tautology, Dan. Yeah, the best definition I had of that was uh, a proposition that says nothing. And essentially it says nothing because it just repeats itself, right? So a tautology, as we said earlier, if you say a triangle is a three-sided shape, or a triangle is a triangle, or a three-sided shape is a three-sided shape. It just repeats itself. And this links to now we've talked about sort of analytic and, and a priori stuff, and you could bring in like Hume's fork and the idea of relations of ideas, that essentially when we are saying a tautology, we are saying these ideas just kind of mean the same thing. The, the words, the symbols that we're using are different, like just then with, with P's and Q's. If I say P, if P, then Q... And then I give you an example where if this happens and that happens, P and this happening and Q and that happening are the same thing. So when you sort of realise that something is the same thing and you realise that something that feels like it's two different things is actually saying the same thing, it can be quite powerful. And you can go, oh, that's just a tautology. That means the same thing. And then the flip side of that, things like Moore's open question is when you realise that things that people think are the same thing because they've done their reduction, you know, like good is pleasure or in, you know, mind, uh, metaphysics of mind, if the, the brain is the mind, you know, well, that's the same thing, but it's not a tautology because actually there's like qualia or there's, you know, it's pleasurable, but is it good? There's an open question about it. So if the reduction doesn't work and it's not tautologous, it can identify again, that's maybe where there's a problem going on. So, Tautology just means, you know, two different things to say the same thing and the, the proposition is ultimately repeating itself. But it's a tool, again, that can unlock 
problems or issues with a, with an argument or an assertion before an argument, one of the premises of an argument, where you go, actually, that's where there's a problem. Great. Okay, let's move on then. Uh, a word that is used quite a bit in common English, but often used incorrectly, I find, and that's dilemma, Ben. Yeah, a, a dilemma, I suppose, in our context is, imagine you've got two mutually exclusive options that you can only have A or B, A or not A, whatever it might be. So if you pick one, you can't pick the other and vice versa. When you've got a situation like that and both of the options lead to something objectionable in whatever sense, so it could be leading to something which is kind of inherently false or which is inherently immoral or which is inconceivable or unbelievable, whatever it is, however it appears in your particular dilemma, that's what we call a dilemma. So it's not a kind of just a tricky decision between things. It's actually that you're led with these, it's not like, you know, just a catch-22. Oh, if I do that, then I can't do this. And if I do this, I can't do that. And I, oh, it's a bit awkward. It's that if you believe this, then you're led to something which is actually kind of detrimental to your case, shall we say, on the other side. Something which kind of shows something, brings up something false, maybe, or something immoral. And then the other side um, would do the same. So the obvious example of this is Euthyphro dilemma. And without kind of going back through that whole thing, it's the idea that you can either have a God that is omnibenevolent in the way that it's phrased kind of in AQA, at least you can have a God who's omnibenevolent, but you can't have a God that's omnipotent. And then on the other side, you can have a God that's omnipotent, but you can't really have a God that's omnibenevolent. And the idea being that if you, if you just look at it, that doesn't seem like a dilemma. You just go, okay, I'll have the omnibenevolent one or whatever it might be. But the point is, if you're arguing for some sort of classical conception of God, then both of those options are devastating to your conception of God. That's why it's a dilemma. You can have this, but then you can't have this, or you can have this other one, but you can't have that previous one. And both are damaging to your case in some sense. Great. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, just to just to pause on, on that. So there's a kind of loose, kind of common use of the word dilemma, which just means a problematic situation where you've got to make a choice, then there's the more narrow and specific use of the word dilemma, which which Ben just uh, just illustrated. And there's lots of other words around uh, around hereabouts which have kind of loose uses and then more specific uses. And, and Ben mentioned Catch Twenty Two. If you haven't read Joseph Heller's classic novel Catch Twenty Two, you really should, where a particular sort of problematic choice situation is developed and sometimes catch 22 is just losing a very very loose way but the narrow sense of catch 22 is you can only do or be or achieve x if you've already done or been or achieved y but you can only do or be or achieve y if you've already done or been or achieved x and it seems there's no way to get into that very tight circle from where you are so it doesn't just mean a problematic situation so often there'll be loose senses of all of these words, which mean problematic situation, but there might be a more narrow, specialised use of them, which means it's problematic in this particular way. And that's often what examiners are, are looking for. Yeah. So in fact, talking about that, let's move on to another word that can you be used in a, quite a loose way and also a quite specific way, and that's paradox. Dan, do you want to have a go at paradox for us? Yeah, I'll start with... Um 
talking about Socrates because uh, he was a fan of the 1990s punk rock group Operation Ivy and he used to sing their song <laughs> Knowledge all the time and he'd sing the chorus, all I know is that I don't know nothing. Um, and when you say the one thing I know is that I don't know anything, um, you're presenting a paradox in a way because if you know that you don't know anything, then you know something and you're not supposed to know anything. If you don't know anything, you wouldn't know even that you know nothing so paradoxes are where you've got these sort of um two premises that if both are true or if if what they say follows the conclusion that you end up with end up with contradicts itself okay so whether it's socrates or anyone if no one knows anything if that's true if we prove that no one knows anything um then we've got a problem because we've undermined ourselves you know you see this in philosophy we talk about subjectivism if you say there's no such thing as truth we've just got lots of different uh, personal views on what truth might be there's no objective truth well it seems like you're saying there is an objective truth that there is no such thing as objective truth and that is a problem we have it with with god the paradox of the stone you know if if, if god is supposed to be able to do absolutely anything then God should be able to make a stone that's so heavy God can't lift it. But if God can't lift it, then there's something God can't do, which means that there's something God can't do. So if God can do it, then there's something God can't do. And if God can't do it, then God can't do it, which means, you know, we've lost it either way. So these paradoxes are coming along and they sort of lead you to conclusions where you go, oh, hang on, I was following that argument, everything was working. And now the conclusion can't be true because it contradicts itself, as Ben was talking earlier. And if it's contradicting itself, that's a sign that maybe something has gone wrong in our reasoning. So the way I always present paradoxes is it's like an alarm bell ringing. If you get to a paradox as your conclusion to some arguments, or if a paradox arises from some premises or, or ideas that you've accepted, then you realise that, that that's a problem. Now, the problem might be a problem with uh, logic and reason, right? Maybe um, there is no such thing as logic and reason. And the paradox is, is shouting at us, stop trying to get everything into a rigorous system where it all makes sense. Um, but if you don't want to abandon logic and reason, then what you've got to do for the paradox is realize you might have a dilemma. Uh, you might go, I need to actually get rid of one of these things and lose one end of that that paradox you know, maybe you can know certain things. Um, and, and, and therefore there is objective truth that, that not, there's not as much objective truth as before, but I will have to back down on one of those premises to get to a conclusion that's not paradoxical anymore. Um, so it's a kind of alarm bell to say something has gone horribly wrong, um, with, with the thought that that's led us there, or again, to just point to a contradiction. And I would say as philosopher, you know, the, the idea that maybe the problem is trying to get rigor and, and logic to it might be the problem if you get something like ethics and you've got a paradox there maybe some of the critical theories of ethics that say there is no such thing as ethics out there an anti-realist position might have some more credence if there keeps being paradoxes you know so if there's lots of paradoxes it might suggest oh actually we do need to to, to look at this whole idea hence with god You've got this this concept that seems like it makes sense. And then you've got paradoxes of the stone. You've got the problem of evil you could see as paradoxical. And you might say, maybe the concept has a problem with it. But ultimately, whenever you get with a concept, a, a paradox, it's like a warning from logic to say something has gone wrong. Abort mission. <laughs> Turn around. Do something different. Right. Yeah. So um, uh, thanks. Thanks very much, Dan. Yeah. So there's, there's that very 
nice, neat, specific use of the word paradox. But in common English, I often find people use the word paradox just to mean problem. Um, but again, it doesn't just mean that, not when you're doing philosophy, it means something more specific uh, about where these premises are leading to and what the contradic- contradiction then looks like, as, as Dan was explaining. Um, should we do two more? So I think a word we've mentioned already, fallacy. Uh, ben, do you want to have a go at fallacy? Uh, fallacies, yeah, I mentioned fallacies a little bit earlier when we were talking about um, antecedents and consequence, and we ended up in that particularly dark place. The uh, a fallacy is basically an error in reasoning. Um, it's it's a problem with your reasoning that stops you being able to move, make that move from true premises to a a true conclusion. There's two kinds of fallacies, really. There's your formal fallacies, which are those logical ones, where when you actually look at it, the the logic of the argument uh, means that it doesn't matter kind of what your premises are as in what the content of them are, just that logic will not get you to that conclusion deductively. Informal fallacies tend to be ones where you might look at them and they might look like the argument's working. You can't necessarily see an immediate glaring error with the P's and Q's and all that sort of business. There's no reason why you can't follow, you couldn't have those as a consistent set of beliefs. It's just that because of some of the reasoning behind what you're doing, doesn't allow you to make the leap from those true premises to those that true conclusion. And there's tons and tons of these. Like there's there's loads of huge great big lists on the internet with everything from kind of like very, very complicated sounding technical names um through to slightly ridiculous sounding names as well. And the, again, they're just kind of good fun to go through sometimes and see how many you can spot while you're watching TV, something like, you know, like stick on, I don't know, Jeremy Vine on a, on Channel 5 is always a good one for that. Just bang on Jeremy Vine on Channel 5 and just sit there and play Spot the Fallacy. And it's it's just good fun. And it'll kind of get, get you through that particular torment. But yeah, it's, it's a way to pass the time, isn't it? It's like a prison game. Um, so, the um, but the, yeah, that's what a fallacy is. It's just a, a kind of an error in reasoning that stops you getting from your premises to your conclusion. And they've normally kind of been um, spotted by somebody as, as a regular error that people make and kind of given a name so that you can actually spot them in the future. Great. Okay. And one of those fallacies that crops up on quite a few of the specifications uh, is slippery slope or the slippery slope fallacy. So, Dan, do you want to round off this segment by talking us through that then? I I will, but I'll also defend slippery slope. So slippery slope as a fallacy um, is the fallacy that you make an argument that if we allow one thing, the unintended consequences of that will be catastrophic. So usually it's in things like ethics, medical ethics. You know, if we allow euthanasia of the terminally ill, next thing you know, <clears throat> we'll be killing grandma for her insurance and you know, life will lose all value. If we allow abortion in these extreme circumstances at this point, then everyone will just be killing their babies to go off on ski holidays. So the slippery slope argument sort of suggests like a slippery slope that from this one first incident all these other things will follow and it will get increasingly bad. So the, it's a fallacy because there's no reason that actually that will happen. You could make a really good case to say in certain circumstances, we should allow certain people to be able to end their lives with euthanasia. And that's absolutely fine. 
and we limit it to those people. And if anyone was to say, oh, what about this? What about that? You go, well, no, we, we, we protected against that in our in our laws that we made. That that was never the case. It was not about devaluing life. In fact, it was about valuing, I don't know, personal autonomy or something. So it's a fallacy because it assumes some terrible thing. So you see it in the, the whole discussion around cancel culture, so-called, you know, if I made a joke that was racist and then people said, I didn't like that joke, it was racist, which probably should happen, they say, well, that means no one can say anything anymore, right? But yes, they can. In fact, that you just said that thing on television in front of everyone, or you said it on your public media platform and you know newspaper that's read by millions of people. So the slippery slope fallacy is assuming that from this one incident, because of that, it will lead to a million things. The reason I'm going to defend it is because sometimes slippery slope is not fallacy. And sometimes people do call out warnings and say, well, if we allow that, there will be an un- unintended consequence. In a way, we're seeing that that conversation around, say, politics at the moment in the UK and the US with people like Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, who kind of got rid of sort of norms of political discourse and what we accept and what we don't. And people were saying from when they started coming onto the political scene, if we allow this one sort of, I don't know, a, a, a lie that's sort of not challenged or a claim that, that's not challenged, if we allow that to pass, who knows what will happen if we if, if we stop calling politicians out for deception or whatever. And people are now maybe saying, oh, we seem to have lost a sense of you know epistemology when it comes to politics. And maybe if we'd have listened about what was on a bus in 2016 and seen that that could be the start of a slippery slope, we might have done something about it. Same with the planet, you know, um, environmental destruction is exponentially getting worse. And people have been talking about this for decades. So maybe if we'd have listened to them in the 1970s and said, yeah, it will be a slippery slope right now, it's okay, but we should probably do something because by 2022, it's going to be minus 15 in Aberdeen. We will, we would have actually maybe stopped a climate catastrophe. So the, the, the slippery slope argument by itself is okay what makes it a fallacy, what makes it okay, is the the strength of the inference that you're making. So we're back to that idea of, of, of evidence and, and you know what is the reasons for you to make a particular case. So if my slippery slope argument has facts to back it up and evidence to back it up, then maybe it's okay. But if my slippery slope is just a massive leap from that one case to presumed future circumstances that I haven't really provided any evidence for, then it's a fallacy. So I think that's maybe a warning for all fallacies as well. So sometimes there are some logical fallacies that just are fallacious, but some of the more informal ones might not mean it's a terrible argument in itself. You, you need to look at, you're using that structure, but maybe that's the best structure we can use. Just like we said about proof earlier, I can't prove the future because none of us are psychic. But if I've got some really good reasons to suggest that if we allow that, it might lead to that then there's probably a, a good case that I could make that's not a proof, but it's not a fallacy in that it's not damaging to the argument. It's been made on some good grounds. That's really helpful, Dan. Yeah, in fact, so interestingly, in some of the specifications, they talk about slippery slope fallacy and some specifications talk about slippery slope. And you just illustrated the, the difference very nicely for us there. Okay, um, let's leave that um, part there and we'll see you in the third part for a few more terms. Okay, and here we are back again for our third uh, part. So this one I I labelled with the inspiring title, 
miscellaneous. Um, so it's just a few more key terms and ideas just to think about here. So who wants to start us with a very important distinction between necessary and contingent? I'm happy to, because um, I, I think it's quite important, and I, I've used it a lot in my own uh, philosophy, actually, um, because I think it, it helps you identify possibilities when you're making arguments um, for what could change and what couldn't, because necessary is, you know, something has to be the case. It is necessary, and contingent means it's dependent on something else. So that could be true on a sort of micro level in an argument with a statement where, like, we talk deductive again, it has to be the case, it's necessary, it's necessary conclusion. Um, whereas contingent is far more, well, if that is true and if that is true, it might be the case, but it might not be the case. But you can also look at it at the big level. So I've used it in sort of political philosophy to sort of point out some of the things that we think are permanent because we've always had them. So I think about political structures, you know, we are born into a world and this is the way it is. And it feels very much that like you couldn't change it. And, it, you know, that's how things have to be. But we sort of saw... Um, during the pandemic when we lock things down but actually we can change things because they, they don't have to be that they, they are changeable we've 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 put them in place and if we've done that we can make them different if we want to so it can be something big like that where you go that there is a case of the way the world has to be necessarily or there's a way the world could be and if it could be it could be otherwise and that could also be practical, like I said, or it could be logical where you look at something like, you know, what, what must a God be if a God existed? Would a God be um, necessarily certain things? Because one of the big problems with God is all these attributes we're supposed to have, and he's supposed to have them because necessarily that's what the word God means in our minds. If God was contingent on the kind of being that God actually turned out to be when we met God one day, then we couldn't have any theories about what God is because we don't know until we've met God. So contingent is dependent. And if you're making an argument or you're hearing an argument and you see that something has been said must be the case, you can sort of step back and go, well, well must it be? What would, what does it mean to be necessary? Well, it has to be. And just like we've been saying throughout, that means analytically true, deductive argument, those things that are those proofs, those holy grails, but are actually quite rare. Um, and if you see with things like arguments about Leibniz and necessary truths that's one of the difficult things in that section of the the A-level course because there aren't so many necessary truths that we can use as examples because when you think of them you go hang on is that a necessary truth or is it contingent on something else so maths tends to be a sort of you know archetypal example that it is necessarily the case that one plus one equals two it's not contingent but even that can be contingent if you look at just the language because the the word one and the word two are completely contingent on the language constructs of the speakers and things like that. So if there's this thing beyond language, the actual number, whatever that is, that might necessarily be the case that whatever a one is, if you put two of them together, you end up with two of them. Um, but the language is contingent. So finding out the areas of an argument or a discussion that have to be versus the argument, the areas that are contingent allows you to, to do the philosophy really and go, well, that, that, that's not the case. That could be different. So are there arguments for why it might be something else? So I think necessary and contingent, just useful things to look at when people are making claims, uh, especially if they make a claim, something has to be the case because a lot of the time it doesn't have to be the case. Great. Really, really helpful, Dan. And now uh, a deep breath, because I know that this next distinction, some people spend their whole careers thinking about these two words. I nearly have, and I started to think about other things. 
Ben, objective and subjective. Okay. Um, objective and subjective, I suppose. Again, it's like kind of one of those ones, it's got a broad sense, an arrow sense, an incredibly technical sense, a not very technical sense, and I'm sure everybody could chip in slightly differently on this. I suppose the way that I would approach it is that you start off with the basics. Objective effectively means independent of any particular beliefs, opinions, feelings that individuals have. So if I were to say that something were an objective fact, if I say it's an objective fact that there are four chairs in this room, then what I'm saying is, is that regardless of your feelings on the matter, regardless of what beliefs you are, things are the way that they are outside of the way that we look at them, the way that we feel about them, whatever it might be. Which means that subjective is kind of the converse of that. It's the, it's stuff that does depend upon the individual and their perspective, their preferences, their feelings, their own beliefs and belief systems, maybe. So that's the sort of simple way, I guess, to look at it. Now, I think my the big thing that I normally start off by following up with is that is not a distinction between good and bad, which some people make. So a lot of people think that that subjective is a criticism of something. And it's not because loads of stuff is subjective. It doesn't make it false. It just means that the criteria for truth relate to something else. So, and this is where the, the objective subjective thing, I won't kind of like raise loads of issues, but it's more that you have to be careful with what you're talking about being objective and subjective, because that itself is a kind of a claim that you're sort of making that needs backing up. So on the one hand, if I were to say something like, I like, I like, like my coffee black without sugar, that's subjective, like in the sense that the only reason that that is the case is because of my particular feelings about coffee and the way that it tastes and my preferences. On the other hand, if somebody were to say Ben likes this and were to say it about me, that's not because of their feelings and preferences. They're making a claim about facts about me that they can judge from the outside. So there's almost like an objective. It's not fully objective because it's about my preferences. But when they're making the judgment, they're making a judgment about the way that the world is beyond their perspective. Their feelings do not fit into this. Now, if you then look at it in a slightly more kind of broader philosophical perspective, you can then start chucking ideas around in utilitarianism, for example. Like the fact that people pursue pleasure, you could argue is a subjective thing. The only reason they pursue pleasure is because of the kinds of people they are and the kinds of preferences they have. They could choose to avoid to pursue pleasure if they wanted to, but they don't. It's the kind of beings that are that's subjective to the kinds of beings that exist in this planet. But it's also an objective fact that that's what human beings do, according to the utilitarian. People just do that by their nature. So it's not that I'm making any big claim here about which one of these is right or wrong. It's more that when you're using the terms objective and subjective, First of all, don't just use them as objective good, subjective bad, objective true, subjective false. Because it's not a criticism to say that something is subjective necessarily, only if it shouldn't be subjective. But also, what are you pointing at when you call it objective or subjective? 
because it might be that you've picked the wrong thing to call objective or subjective. You just phrased it a little bit differently. So, the you know, my preferences are subjective, but the fact that I have pre- preferences is objective. So make sure that you know what you're pointing to. And you might actually have to argue your case a little if you do want to say that something is just subjective or if you do want to say that something is objective, especially with something like, like I say, utilitarianism. If they say that it's objective that we all follow our pleasures, um, you know, it's a fact about who we are. But there would be plenty of people out there who dispute that. So very simple terms, commonly misused, commonly misunderstood, and and yet another can of worms. Yeah, yeah. Massive can of worms, I think. <laughs> uh, but Ben, thanks very much for that. I think that was expertly done. Let's leave that one there. Um, there are there are a few more terms that um, appear on some of the religious studies specifications in the in the philosophy and ethics part. So let's just think about some of those. So the next one we've got on our list is agape. Uh, Dan, do you want to take agape? Yeah, it's usually associated with Christian thought, and it's the idea of basically just having love for others and acting out of of love for other people. And it's a specific kind of love. It's not a sort of erotic love where you're, you know, attracted to people, or it's not an affection for a reason. It's not. I don't know. You're you're not, you're not trying to get anything out of it. It's a selfless just love of other humans, and it's believed in the Christian tradition. You know that this is the sort of love God shows for us. Um, you know, God doesn't want anything from us, just does nice things and, and loves us. Although he does seem to want us to worship him and do all kinds of very specific things for him. But we pass that by. Um, and it's the example Jesus shows uh, of dying for us. Again, you know, he, he dies on the cross for humanity because he loves us. And this whole idea is supposed to be an example that, that humans would use um, in their doings with people to make sure you do things because you you love um, one another. Now, in terms of philosophy, it's an important word because if you're talking about motivation for ethical action from a Christian faith perspective, which lots of the religious studies um, courses that call themselves philosophy and ethics courses um, will include, like Christian ethics in their in their course. So, whereas a utilitarian might act to you know maximise happiness and uh, a Kantian would follow the categorical imperative, a Christian ethicist might follow some principle of, of agape what would be the most loving thing to do um, and loving is kind of nice and broad compared to um, some of those things like utilitarianism which are equally maybe consequentialist because it allows for some of those things where you say well what about where uh, it, it breaks the principle of this one thing like achieving happiness but it's what we want to do so the, the classic example is like i don't know saving someone you know from a burning building rather than you know, five random people, you should save the five according to blunt utilitarian logics. Well, if I'm acting out of love, I might act out of love for the five, but I'm also acting out of a different kind of love um, for the person I know. But I have to make my ethical decisions based on this more sort of abstract idea of love, not my personal relationship, um, but my love of humanity. And therefore, I might also choose the five over the person I know but not because of the mathematics of it, but because that sense of love means, well, they've got five families that are going to lose five people and I need to think about my connectedness to to humanity. So that's why sometimes that idea has been taken out of a Christian tradition, just looked at in terms of other ways of acting based on a sense of kindred spirit with fellow humanity and stuff like that. 
but it is a it is a usually in the Christian context it, it's used and it's um, it's an interesting one because it sort of implies that you have to act because you 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 love someone and it gets around that idea that well I don't love them by saying no you do because they're humans and sort of redefines love in a way that maybe isn't recognizable as love in the everyday use of the word that we would use because yes you would have to act with love towards you know the moral monster just as much as you would act with love towards someone you actually love in an everyday use of the word love because of our connected fellow humanity just like jesus helped sinners even though you know they've sinned and things like that great thanks dan that was really helpful and there's another word that uh, is used both in the Christian tradition, but in other traditions as well. And that's telos or teleology. Uh, ben, do you want to take that one for us? Okay. Um, telos can be kind of summarised as a, a word for aim or goal or end. So when we talked about, you know, means to an end, in that sense of end, kind of like the thing that you're aiming for or towards, what Aristotle called the final cause, kind of the thing that you're kind of aiming at at the end. Um, I think if you're thinking in terms of philosophy and philosophy of religion and things like that, there's various ways in which it crops up. So a big one would be kind of like metaphysics. So if you go back to Plato and people like that, where there's this idea that everything sort of tends towards the good. So built into everything that exists, there's this moving forward towards the good itself so as as individuals then if you then think a level up from metaphysics and then going to the way that our natural world is you then get teleological views that suggest that either everything in the world is tending towards the good naturally trying to strive to be the best that it can be or you can see teleology in the sense that everything has a purpose everything has a sort of function that it performs and each bit of a thing. So if I think about my human body, each part of my body has some sort of thing that it is aiming towards, some sort of goal that it is unconsciously trying to achieve. And that what's good for it is its ability, you know, to go to kind of Aristotle, is its ability to be able to perform that function. And what's bad for it or what's evil is its failure to perform that function, things that prohibit it from, from performing that function. So that's when you start to get two kind of other split-offs going off here is, well, how do you get that idea of aiming towards something, something that seems quite intentional without some sort of being which organises that intention, which actually puts things into motion? So, you know, why is it that um, the human circulatory system, when you look about how insanely complicated it is, to perform this very specific function, which is then integrated into all these other things. How do you explain that without the idea of somebody actually piecing it all together? So you then get the teleological argument in its various forms, the argument for the existence of God as the kind of organiser of this telos, the person who sets the aims and then all the little micro aims in between the little kind of machines within machines as David Hume called them, are all fitted together to kind of achieve that purpose. On the other hand, you also find it in moral philosophy. So I've taught there about Aristotle and this idea of what is good for us as human beings, this kind of eudaimonia, kind of aiming towards the good for humans um, as rational beings and as beings capable of these virtues of character. 
um, virtues of intellect, kind of moral virtues. This whole idea of growth and striving towards something, which is this sort of completion, this fullness, eventually. But you can also see it in utilitarianism will often be referred to as a teleological theory, but in a slightly different way. It's not this idea of moving towards a sense of metaphysical completion. There's a little bit of that in Mill, in On Liberty in places, but this moving towards a kind of like a, a fullness, it's more of a, each one of our actions is aimed at pleasure. Like that's the, that's the reason why you do everything is happiness. You know, if you're not being hedonistic, just generally happiness. So everything you do, even when you think about stuff that you don't do because of happiness, actually you're doing it because of happiness. So there's this kind of inbuilt natural. It's not metaphysical. It's just natural kind of aiming towards the good in that sense. So it's always with Telos, it's always this idea of kind of a final end or goal, either in that sort of short-term-y sort of utilitarian, I'm just doing something to make me happy sense, or this big metaphysical, Aristotelian, platonic kind of aiming towards the good kind of sense. Great. Thanks, Ben. Really helpful. And we've reached the end of our list with the final two, which are ways of thinking about God. And that's via positiva and via negativa. Dan? Yeah, I'll, I'll say mine, but it probably won't make much sense until we hear from Ben. Um, because I'm basically going to say the via positiva is the belief that you can say things about God. Um, so all the stuff we know about God, positively said, like God is omniscient and things like that, are are using this approach of talking about God, the, the via positiva. Um because the belief there is that you can make positive statements about God. So the thing without stepping on Ben's toes is it's it's making the claim that although God is believed usually to be transcendent and things beyond our understanding, with positive statements about God, despite that, there are still some things we can say about God, um, that God is maybe not completely conceivable and understandable and effable. We can't really always talk about everything God is, but we can say some things about God. So it kind of is almost an answer to that question when when someone sort of says, well, if God's beyond our understanding, how come you know so much about God? Um, Because there are some things we can know, like glimpses of the divine that we are able to say. But I think that's really all that makes sense unless we hear from Ben about what the via negativa is as to why that might be interesting to a philosophy student. <laughs> um, I'll hand it back over to you when I finish. Then yeah. you can you can round off the kind of like the interesting juicy bit at the end. So yeah, um, being negative then would be this idea that you can't talk about God, that God is this transcendent being, and that even if I attempt to say things positively about God, those concepts are human concepts about human behaviour, about human characteristics. Those people who've studied Hume here, this idea of kind of knowing what God is because you look at a person and then just kind of exaggerate their features, kind of, you know, his sort of atheistic sort of view of God is kind of like, uh, this is sort of reminiscent of that in a little bit of a way. Look, you're really just talking about human characteristics here. And this doesn't capture the grandeur, like the magnificence of God, that actually a word like good can sum up people, but it doesn't sum up God. Like God is so beyond that it's incomprehensible so actually what the via negative does because like right away it's a way of thinking about god it's this gradual stripping away of 
all of those concepts to kind of it never kind of from my understanding of this this is not my strongest area but my understanding of this is with this stripping away there's almost like a eventually a revelation part of this that that actually the only way that you can kind of think about god or get in contact with god is to kind of let go of all of that positive thinking about the world and kind of almost like an openness which comes with that once you've kind of stop trying to squeeze him into your sort of human concepts. Yeah, and that, and that's where the, the the via positiva really comes in because once you've eliminated, it's kind of a bit, you know, logic and process of elimination. Of Once you go, I don't know what God is, God's beyond my understanding. So that will tell me if God's beyond my understanding, what, what isn't God? Well, God can't be limited. God can't be uh, finite. God can't be stupid. God can't be evil. Um, if, if you've got this idea of what God is and you're sort of, by definition, thinking and eliminating, what are you left with? And that's when you can then positively say, well, God is this and God is that. But it doesn't always work with logic. And that's why lots of time it relies on, as you say, revelation. So some would say, you can't just think to yourself, what is God? You need God to intervene and say, I am this, I am that by doing something. So a Christian using that idea of agape would say, well, God is love, not because they know God, but because God's given messages through sending Jesus down and things like that, that you can judge it from. Where some people would say, even with all of that, we don't know what God is doing. We can't say anything. So I can't positively affirm that God is love. I can just say God is not someone to try and understand, right? And that would be describing something about God, but I'm describing it in the negative. To bring it back to philosophy um, and away from theology, it kind of it is something that the students of A level philosophy would indirectly be aware of because when we look at Linda Zagzebski talking about how to define uh, knowledge, she specifically says it can't be a negative definition; it needs to be something positive. And she's kind of using the same idea, but for something else. It's another thing where we're going. Well, what is it? How do we define it? So it doesn't have to be God, but you can use those principles of like if I'm trying to define this thing, I don't know God or knowledge. You know, what's the best kind of definition that we can go for? And some people go, well, I don't know what knowledge is, but I know what knowledge isn't. Knowledge isn't an opinion. And Zagzebski sort of says, well, that's not good enough. We, we need to have some positive, what is the thing that she says, you know, gives us cognitive contact with reality? How do we know what that thing is in some way? So although that's not via positiva or via negativa, the same principle doesn't just have to come from this religious tradition. But, you know, if I want a definition, I probably am looking for something that affirms something specific and says something is something rather than just something that says something is not stuff. But back to what we've been saying all podcast, you know, that's not, if that's all you can do, then that's maybe good enough. So some would disagree with, with Zagzebski and say, well, we'll never know what knowledge is, although paradox, um, we'll never know what knowledge is, but we will know what knowledge isn't. And from that, we might be able to infer something that knowledge will work as a sort of pragmatic definition for now, which again isn't a proof and it isn't a, a final definition, but it's it's something we can work with. And that might be what you do with God as well. Like I don't know what God is, but I know what God isn't. So this is as good as we can get until we die and go to heaven and God tells us what we were right about and what we were wrong about, like a game of guess who. Uh, that's great a nice note to end on as well uh dan um listen we've we had a long list and uh we've got through it all amazingly in one in one recording um so we should thank dan for being with us and giving us all your time and thoughts thanks dan 
Thank you. Lovely being here and happy Christmas to anyone listening and celebrating. That people will probably be listening to this though in uh, in know, January, May or something. Exams, right? Yeah, the January mock exams or May for your real exams. So I uh, hope you enjoyed Easter or whatever it is you're celebrating. Yeah. It's not um, three months till Christmas. It's not three months <laughs> to Christmas. Uh, ben, thanks also to you for, for being with us. No, thank you. And thank you for having me back anytime. And happy holidays all around. That's right. Happy holidays and happy revision time, if that's what you're doing, listening to this uh, episode. Be kind to yourself, I suppose, is the most important thing. Uh, yeah, thanks to you for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode and hope you can listen again soon to lots more of our episodes. Mm-hmm.